With that, let us now turn to our passage for this morning. We'll be reading from Mark, continuing in chapter 7, verses 14 through 23. Pastor Bill will be preaching God's word for us. I'll be reading from the ESV. This is Mark chapter 7, 14 through 23. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach, and is also expelled? And thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. morning. It's good to be back here this morning worshiping with you all today in person. Sally and I were away last week, but we were able to worship with you virtually. And you realize that's an incredible blessing that you didn't used to get when you went away on vacation. So very thankful for that and very, very thankful to be here this morning with you all. We're continuing our Sunday morning teaching series in the book of Mark today, and we're in the middle of a larger section. Pastor Luke started it for us last week at the beginning of chapter 7. And Jesus and the Pharisees are having a conversation. It's more of a debate, actually. A debate that takes place on two levels. On the surface, it seems like they're discussing a religious purification ceremony. Pharisees have a tradition of washing their hands after they get back from the marketplace. And it's a tradition that has nothing to do with modern germ theory. So if you're thinking in hygienic terms, you're, you'll, you'll miss the point of what's taking place here because it's actually far more intense than that. Stakes are much higher because it has to do with catching something worse than any disease. Ceremonial tradition is not about being physically dirty, but about being spiritually dirty, about catching some kind of spiritual defilement. It's a little bit, uh, and the ceremonial tradition is to take that away so that you can actually then enter into God's presence. You can't enter into his presence if you're unclean, to maybe get yourself on board with this, think that it's a little bit like the spiritual equivalent of not getting washed before you go out on a date or a job interview. Something that would make the other person wrinkle up their nose, maybe even pull back from you a little bit. It's a little bit like that, only a whole lot worse. Because spiritual defilement doesn't make you a little stinky. Even just a little bit makes you so completely disgusting that spiritually pure beings can't stand to be in the same room with you. However, spiritual defilement leaves you mostly unaware of how bad you are because it ruins it, your spiritual senses. You go spiritually nose-blind to how you actually sp smell spiritually, just like you do if you go physically and work out. You have a sense that maybe you need to get a shower, but everybody else around you knows much better than you do that you need to go get washed. When you're spiritually defiled, you don't see your own condition, you don't experience yourself as you really are. And so at best you have this vague sense, you know, a little guilt, a little shame, but because you're defiled, you don't realize how deep down the corruption goes. So how do you get on board with something when you've lost the ability to sense it? Well, that's why God gave his people the purity laws. The laws that told you this food is clean, this food is unclean. Or he told you that someone else might be unclean because of what they did and how that then might affect you or how something could happen to you to make you unclean so that you could not enter into his presence. God was giving them a physical experience and he gave them the job of discerning the difference between clean and unclean, something they could literally see, to teach them about their spiritual reality that they could not see. And they were to learn from this picture of physical defilement 
what their real spiritual need was. Only as Pastor Luke showed us last week, the Pharisees substituted the picture for the reality. And so they saw certain foods or catching a disease, coming in contact with diseased people. They saw that as the spiritual reality. They saw that as what would morally defile you. And so they created laws about making sure that you're washed, about how well you washed after you got back from the marketplace. Laws and traditions that went well beyond what God said to make sure that you were not contaminated by anything unclean. You know, you can never be too careful, went the thinking. You never know who else might have been in the marketplace before you, someone who might have been unclean and they might have been touching the stuff that you then touched. And so without knowing it, you might now be unclean. So better safe than sorry. When you get home, make sure you wash so that you're clean. That's the background for when the Pharisees see Jesus' disciples eating with unwashed hands, defiled hands. And they want to know why. Why does Jesus, this rabbi, allow his disciples to eat with unwashed hands? That's one level that the debate is taking place on. It's with respect to this issue of washing. Or at least, that's the level at which the Pharisees want to deal with the question. Jesus is aware, however, that that's only the surface issue. That there's another whole level of the debate underneath. It's a much more significant level. And that there's an underlying assumption here taking place about the nature of spiritual defilement. The nature of moral defilement. And it's an issue that's concerned with the question, where does it come from? What is the source of spiritual defilement? What's the real source of what will damage you spiritually, of what will damage you morally? Does it come from outside of you and then proceed to work its way in, defiling you as it goes, making what was relatively pure now impure? Is it something that is external to you that you can catch from the world around you? If that's the case, then sure. Wash really, really well, because that makes sense. Or... Is it something inside of you already? Something that is not external but internal. Something that is part of your makeup as a human being. Something that moves from the inside out. Some intrinsic impurity that you and I carry around with us. Is it something that you catch by going to the marketplace and then bringing it home with you? Or is it something that you take with you to the marketplace? This is the important part of the debate, the de part that asks, what is the nature of humanity? Do you and I bring with us the seeds of what defiles us everywhere we go? Or are we basically spiritually okay and we just have to be careful what we pick up from the surrounding world? when you realize that this is the underlying debate between Jesus and the Pharisees, you realize that we're not having some abstract theological discussion now about ceremonial religious traditions. Something that is time and culture bound, locked safely away in the first century in the ancient Near East. Something that people back then, well, they, they were willing to challenge each other over, they were willing to get in each other's faces about, but we moderns, we've grown past that. You realize, no, that's not the case. You realize instead our modern world asks the same question, that we've been asking it for centuries. Everyone recognizes that there are horrible things that take place in this world. That's obvious. Something is wrong with the world. What is less obvious is what is the source of that horror. Is it from something outside ourselves Something that is so strong and so irresistible, so compelling, so corrosive that it forces otherwise decent human beings to be defiled. Does it work from the outside in? Or is it ultimately from within? From some source within us that on its own volition takes advantage of people, takes advantage of circumstances, 
takes advantage of social locations and social systems, takes advantage of our advantages. Do we defile ourselves? Does it work from the inside out or from the outside in? Now, the working assumption of the Pharisees is that we are pretty much okay, but there is bad stuff out there in the world that you have to protect yourself from in a lot of different ways so that it doesn't affect you. Jesus' working assumption is completely different. He gathers the people around himself and he tells them, verse 15, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Jesus believes the problem is inside, not outside. That the source of what defiles you is you not something from outside of you. It's a complete contradiction of the Pharisees' underlying belief. It's not the way that they think about themselves. It's not the way that they think about other people. And notice this, it's not the way that the disciples think either. Verse 17, when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. Make sure you get this. There's a lot of hope here. They've been with him. They've listened to him. They're on board with him in a lot of different ways. They've even served in ministry with him. <laughs> but there's something about his understanding of the fundamental nature of human beings that they still haven't grasped, which means they don't fully understand why he's here or what he's here to do. And the reason this is hopeful for you and for me this morning, if we find ourselves in their place is that not only did Jesus take the time to say this is where the problem really is, but he then unpacked it with his friends. It's really important for us in our society. This was just as hard a sell in Jesus' day as it is today. And so we're going to take a look at three things today to see why Jesus would tackle something that is so contrary to our human understanding of ourselves. First, we'll understand, we'll unpack what Jesus says is wrong with the world. Second, we'll see what happens if we reject what Jesus says. And then third, we'll see that there's real hope if you embrace what he says. What Jesus says is wrong with the world. What happens if you reject what he says? And why there's hope if you embrace what he says. First, what Jesus says is wrong with the world, that the problem is inside of us, not outside Go down to verses 21 22 there in your copy of the scripture. And you'll see that Jesus says there are numerous unclean things that come out of people. And that what produces those things, what is responsible for them, is something that he calls the heart. For out of the heart of man come all these things. In other words, inside of a human being, according to Jesus' understanding of humanity, there is something that is incredibly active. And this active thing is pumping out a variety of other things. They're actually kind of, you can categorize them. First, Jesus says that out of this heart come evil thoughts. If you remember, we said something very similar to that a couple weeks ago. That from Jesus' viewpoint, your thoughts and your thinking is not the most ultimate essence of who you are. It's not the foundational aspect of you that then generates everything else. Rather, thoughts are simply one expression out of a variety of expressions that come from this heart. But the heart does more than just produce thoughts. It also produces things that we would classify as behaviors. Things like sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, slander. Things that all find their origin in a person's heart. Activities that are not driven by the circumstances that you find yourself in, but that are driven from something within you. And then Jesus lists some odd things there. Deceit. You think, okay, that's not really an action or a thought. Sensuality, that isn't either. Envy, pride, foolishness, wh what are these? They're not necessarily actions. You can't do sensuality. You can't do envy. How do you do pride? You realize they have action components associated with them, but they're more than simply behaviors. They're more like what we would call emotions, attitudes, 
a certain stance that you take toward the rest of the world. And notice here that Jesus says even these things have a source, that they are not simply a physiological reaction to something that's happening to you. They're not merely that. They're not merely that any more than your thoughts in your brain are this electrochemical interaction. Instead, these things have a source. These emotions, these attitudes are generated by something inside of a person that is responsible for them. Now, what did Jesus just do here? He, he just gave us a radically complex understanding of people. He said, you are not primarily a thinking machine or primarily an acting machine or primarily a feeling machine. Instead, you are a complex human being. But if you look underneath your thoughts, your actions, and your feelings, you'll find that there is something responsible for all of those different expressions, something that he calls the heart. Which is actually a turning point here in this passage. <laughs> the disciples don't understand what he's talking about when he teaches the crowd that things outside of a person cannot defile a person. When he says defilement starts as an inside thing, they're, they're, they're not on board, and so they ask him to explain what he means. And he says, verse 18, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Now, why does Jesus think that that's an explanation? Why does he think that that is so obvious that when he says that, that people are going to go, oh, right, <laughs> got it, now I'm on board? It's because Jesus is not creating a new teaching here. This is not a never-before-seen revelation. Instead, Jesus is drawing on extensive material from Scripture that says basic human nature is what? It's twofold. There's an inner part of a person whom we can't see, something that Scripture will over and over and over and over and over refer to as your heart. There's this inner person that we can't see who is responsible for producing everything that we can see. An inner person whose core is that it's worship. And so this inner person either orients you around God or it orients you around a God substitute. There's this inner worshiping part of you that we can't see and this outer person, thoughts, emotions, actions, that expresses the desire of the inner person. Jesus gets this out of Scripture. If you start actually going through that list of things there in verse 21, 22, you'll realize how much of these ideas he's pulling out of Scripture. For instance, the very first one, that out of the heart of man come evil thoughts. That notion actually comes on early on in Genesis chapter 6. We're told in verse 5 that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Realize Jesus is not creating a new idea here. He's re referencing an old one that people should have been paying attention to. That after sin entered the world, every intention, every inclination of the thoughts of people's hearts, the thought produced by a person's heart, the way that that heart expresses itself in ideas, that that was only evil all the time. Jesus takes that idea directly from Scripture. Or you think about the word foolishness in that list. You realize there's an entire Old Testament book, the book of Proverbs, that's dedicated to unpacking what foolishness means. That foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child that we enter into this world with a distorted heart. And that distorted heart then is linked to the things that we think, the things that we say, the things that we do, the way that we feel in this world. It's all driven by the heart. Or look back over that list, and you can't help but notice that a number of those come directly out of the Ten Commandments. Theft, murder, adultery, coveting, its cousin envy. Those are all things that you're told you shall not do. Now, why is that significant? It's significant because lots of nations had generated lists of laws that restricted what people did or what they couldn't do. So lots of nations said, don't steal, don't murder, don't lie, don't commit adultery. 
They had laws against your actions, laws against your behavior. Only God in Israel legislated against coveting, against what took place inside of you. It's the Tenth Commandment. Only God dared to say that there were things in life that you are just not allowed to want. There are desires you're not allowed to have. Exodus 20, verse 17, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And it's this commandment coming at the end that tells you that all of the others are not simply prohibiting actions. They're not saying, look, as long as your behavior lines up with between these two lines, it's okay. Think about desire anything else in the world that you want. It's this commandment that links all of your behaviors back inside to a source within you. Think about it this way. Without this commandment, you might try to argue that what caused you to sin, what caused you to steal, to lie, to murder, commit adultery, that what caused you to do that was that something happened in the larger world and you, you just kind of fell into it, that it was a crime of opportunity. It wasn't the real you. It was just something that you fell into, that you only murdered because that other person made you so angry that you only slept with that person because she was hot, that you only stole because you didn't have the money and the shopkeeper turned his back, that it was circumstances that drove you, that compelled you, forced you to act against your better nature, that it was outside in. By putting this commandment here, God won't let you think like that. This commandment makes you realize that the source of why you do what you do comes from within you. For instance, I don't know about you, but I have never coveted my neighbor's donkey. I've been to a lot of farms, or his ox, actually, for that matter. I've been to a lot of farms, and I've never once thought, oh, man, that's a great donkey. I really want to have that donkey. In fact, you could probably put a thousand donkeys in front of me, and the thought of coveting one of them never would happen to me. Why is that? Because depending on the website that you visit, you recognize that domesticated donkeys top out about 15, 30 miles an hour. I want something a lot faster, so I will covet your Tesla or your Honda or your Lexus, but never your donkey. In other words, it's not the presence of the external thing that causes me to covet. That donkey can be there from now until it and I both pass away, and I will never covet that. Why? Because the coveting is from within me, not from without. And so I'm not interested in a donkey as much as a car that will get me from A to B in the latest style possible. All of those various things, those outside things, donkeys, Teslas, Hondas, Lexi, all they do is give me something to fix my coveting on. They give me an object that my wanting can then fasten itself to. But the want, the desire to have what you have, the desire to have something that God has not given me, the desire to be dissatisfied with what God has given me, to want what he's given you, that desire comes from within me. Let me give you a different illustration. Pretend that this cup is full of water. And then pretend that I bump it. Now what's going to happen? Water is going to slosh out of the cup and end up on the floor. Now here's the question. It's a really important question because this question is the underlying question of the debate that Jesus is having. Why is there water on the floor? Very important question. Why is there water on the floor? And the answer that modern Americans find so natural, easy, compelling, the answer that goes back through history that the Pharisees would have resonated with, is that there's water on the floor because the cup was bumped. That the cause of the water on the floor came where? From outside in. And for most of us, that just makes sense. 
for many of us, we can't even think in any other kind of way. We can't imagine any other way. It's just simple cause and effect. There's water on the floor because someone bumped the cup. When God answers that same question scripture, however, he says that there's water on the floor because there's water in the cup. Think about that for a moment. It's not a Zen thing. There's water on the floor because there's water on the cup. When Jesus says that actions, thoughts, and emotions all come up out of the heart, he's teaching his disciples to ask a different question. He's teaching them not to ask, why is there water on the floor? He's teaching them to ask, why isn't there Pepsi on the floor? And the reason that there is not Pepsi on the floor is because, what? There wasn't Pepsi in the cup. Now, Jesus is not denying that the living in this world bumps us, that it bumps us a lot. God is not saying that external circumstances don't matter. He does not say, deny that people are mean to us, that on a daily basis you're going to have to deal with disrespectful kids, with unpleasant spouses, with selfish roommates, unfair bosses, impossible deadlines. You're going to deal with feeling sick and tired. You're going to live in unjust social systems. God knows that in this world you will be bumped regularly and often. What he's saying is that the external circumstances are not the cause of what you do. That the bumps are not responsible for putting the water or the Pepsi into the cup in the first place. They don't cause the water or Pepsi to be there. They simply make obvious what is already there. It's true, if we hadn't been bumped, we wouldn't have spilled water on the floor, but the bump did not create water. Nor did the bump turn Pepsi into water. At most, what do the bumps do? They expose for you and for everyone else to see what's already in the cup. They expose what's already in your heart. They expose the goals and the desires that you live for. The things that you long for, the things that you want, the things that you worship, those things are directly linked to what then comes out of you. It's that inner worshiping core that produces what you think, what you do, and what you feel. You don't pick up defilement in the marketplace but you bring it with you into the marketplace. And it's your heart that makes you think that you're not the problem in the marketplace, but that everyone else is. Which brings us to point two. What happens if you reject what Jesus says about moral defilement? That it sources individually in each one of our hearts. Three things very quickly. First, you will misdiagnose the problem because you will try to locate the problem in something external to yourself. And so you will blame your reactions on other people, on how they were acting, on what they were saying to you, on the tone of voice that they were using, on the attitude that you got from them, on how they were driving their car. You'll blame it on other people, or you'll blame it on how you're feeling, on being tired, on being sick, worn out. Or you'll blame it on how you were raised in your family, in your society, that you were taught certain ways of living that now force you down predetermined paths. And all you need to do is think about Jesus here, and you realize that none of those external things, as hard as they are, as difficult as they are to overcome, none of them are actually able to force you to sin. Jesus grew up under Roman occupation. He grew up in a town that was targeted and despised by other towns in the area. It was a town that people considered to be on the wrong side of the tracks. When Philip tells his friend Nathaniel, uh, who is from a nearby town, about Jesus of Nazareth, Nathaniel blurts out, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Jesus is now on the receiving end of that hatred. He does not respond with hatred of his own. Nor does he try to suck it up to Nathaniel, get in on his good side. The racist and the classist structures that he encountered did not compel him to sin against other people. Nor did the pressure of the crowd. 
the pressure of long, exhausting days, the constant testing and criticism of the Pharisees. He was tempted in every way we are, fully human. He felt the pressure of other people's demands. He felt his own physical limitations, other people's unwarranted hatred, and it did not shape his response to anyone. Jew or Gentile, male or free, advantaged or disadvantaged. When you have one counterfactual, one instance of something that goes against your theory, you don't have causation. Which tells you that things around you, as much as they pressure you, tempt you, the things around you are not the cause for how you're responding. If you're focused on the externals as the source of spiritual de defilement, you're misdiagnosing the problem which secondly will cause you to misdiagnose the solution. If you look for the source of the problem in external things, you will then rely on external ways of dealing with it. You'll attempt to be a modern-day Pharisee. You'll tell yourself that human ideas and human power are enough to deal with the problem, that better education, better legislation will eradicate moral problems. Or that's what ne is needed is simply a little more willpower. Just wash our hands a little bit better, wash them a little bit more thoroughly, do it the right way, and we will be free from spiritual defilement. Look for the source out there, and you will believe that the lie that we humans can handle the problem of moral depravity. That will make you wonder why you're coming to church. Why did Jesus come to to this earth if he was so smart thinking that he had to die if the problem really wasn't all that bad that we could have taken care of it if he just gave us a little bit more time why did he come why do we need him you won't understand why jesus came and if you tell people that we really can overcome moral depravity on our own that we just need to work a little bit harder then you'll have to start motivating people by shaming them in order to keep them working hard at their moral reformation project. And you, so you'll tell them it really is possible to be good and that good people try harder to be good. And if they're not good, then guess what? It's because you must not be trying hard enough. You'll shame them. You'll drive people into themselves. Your children will be afraid to tell you when they haven't been good. Your friends will not tell you when they've been struggling. People won't tell you that they just can't be good, that they feel like quitting. Without trying to, you'll have become arrogant. You'll have set yourself up as the example of those who can do good. And others will be demoralized. Worst of all, no one's going to be honest. They won't be honest with themselves. They won't be honest with each other. That's what Jesus says happened to the Pharisees. He called them hypocrites in last week's passage. People who were not honest with themselves. People who were blind to the ways in which they said things that sounded godly, but their hearts were far from God. They had no interest in God. They were very good at pointing out other people's failings while being completely oblivious to their own. They weren't honest with themselves. And if I can share personally, that's part of my fear for where we are as a society at this moment. Have you noticed how good we've gotten at pointing out other people's failings? We are increasingly emphasizing various moral pictures of the universe. There's a lot of different pictures of the universe. I get that. Moral pictures that detail what is wrong with our society and what is wrong with our world. We have very different pictures of what is wrong. And there's a commonality in the way that we talk about them. No one, I think it's fair to say no one. If I'm wrong, please come and correct me. No one is saying, here's what's wrong with the world, and it's also what's wrong with me. Instead, we've gotten very good at saying what lots of people are doing is not okay. What they are doing is wrong. It's just flat out wrong. They need to stop, but I'm okay. Me and all the people who think like I do. Who do you hear in your world pointing out their own failings? 
saying that they share in humanity's failings. Who do you hear saying, look, it's not okay to hate anyone, to be unjust to someone else in any way, shape, or form. That's just wrong. And yet, I find in my own heart all kinds of hatred. What I do looks different from what other people are doing, but it comes from the same source. I may not hate people based on their ethnicity, but I can't stand people with different politics. I roll my eyes, I'm condescending, and I th in my mind I say, they're just stupid. Or I find that I am condescending to people of different occupations, or that I treat people differently based on their vocabulary or their sentence structure or by the clothes that they wear, or the school that they come from, or the, the tech that they carry. I find in myself all the same temptations to categorize and create hierarchies of people that any racist does. I am no better. It's no more okay in me than it is in anyone else. And I can't seem to find the key to unlock my own soul. Who do you hear saying things like that? If you look for the problem in external things and you use external means to solve it, you will simply recreate the Pharisee experiment. It did not work well 2,000 years ago. And it will not work well today. But you'll end up being surprised when it doesn't. You'll keep being surprised because evil will keep poking up its head after all that you've done to deal with it. Let me share with you one of the hardest things to do in relationship counseling couple comes in and they say, we need help with our communication. We're just not getting along. We keep fighting, keep fighting over what we want. Can you help us communicate better? I think, Bill, why, why is that hard? Just teach them active listening skills, right? This is hard because if you and they don't realize that first their hearts have to change, that the source of their problem is not the words that they say, it's not their communication, but it's the heart that informs their communication. It's their hearts that are set on getting something from each other, not giving themselves unreservedly to each other. If they don't experience a change at the level of what they want, then all your communication strategies will do is help them communicate their wants better in such a way that the other person will feel more obligated to give in and feel more resentful. Without a heart change, you will make them more skilled at getting what they want out of each other. And guess what? They will trust you. <laughs> and they will work really, really, really hard. And then they'll be surprised that the relationship is not getting better. Or let's think individually here, not relationally. Ignore dealing with your heart. Just focus on external factors and you will end up being surprised when your anger issue crops up again or you binge again or that feeling of hopelessness and depression overwhelms you. And you'll think to yourself, I did what I was supposed to do. <laughs> I counted to 10. I put little notes on my refrigerator. I put blocking software on my phone. I told myself I was pretty and smart and that anybody would be thrilled to be able to have someone like me. That it didn't matter what anyone else thought of me. That I feel good, I feel great, I feel wonderful. And yet here I am again, angry, bloated, acting out, depressed. How did this happen? Focus on the externals and you will be surprised individually. And we'll also be surprised as a society that surprise hit the Western world really hard after the horrors of the first half of the 20th century. Going into the 20th century, there was great confidence in the intrinsic goodness of humanity, great confidence in our ability to reform ourselves, so much confidence that people were absolutely devastated by the sequence of World War I followed by the Great Depression, followed by World War II. Dorothy Sayers, literary friend of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien has this to say. She writes shortly after the Second World War. The people who are most discouraged and made despondent by the barbarity and stupidity of human behavior at this time 
are those who still cling to an optimistic belief in the civilizing influence of progress and enlightenment. To them, the appalling outbursts of bestial ferocity in the totalitarian states and the obstinate selfishness and stupid greed of capitalist society are not merely shocking and alarming. For them, these things are the utter negation of everything in which they've believed. Now, for the Christian, this is not the case. He is as deeply shocked and grieved as anybody else. But he's not astonished. He's never thought very highly of human nature left to itself. He has been accustomed to the idea that there is a deep interior dislocation in the very center of human personality so that the mere increase of knowledge is of very little help in the struggle to outlaw evil. If you reject what Jesus has to say about where the source of the problem of evil is, that it really comes from this deep interior dislocation in the center of every human being, you will look for that source outside yourself. You will apply external methods to deal with it. And you'll be astonished when they prove over and over and over that they're just not up to the job. Which brings us to point three very quickly. If you embrace what Jesus says, you will discover that you have a solution to the problem of spiritual defilement. God broke into this world from the outside. Jesus came bringing resources to us that we didn't have. Look again at what he's doing here in Mark chapter 7. He's making clear to people what's confused them. That the problem works from the inside out, not from the outside in, and that therefore they're going to need a whole lot more help than they can give themselves. Because the problem is them, not everything around them. He's making clear what he's already said in Scripture. What they could have known if they had been reading and paying attention. Now, what is it when someone helps you see what you already should have known? That's mercy. That's deep mercy. It's mercy so that you don't keep wasting your time and ruining your life. It's mercy that says God is on the move, and God is only on the move when he has good intentions for his people. He is here bringing resources that you didn't have. And Jesus does just that. Verse 19, he declared, all food's clean. That verb is important. He didn't say that all foods were clean. He didn't say they were clean, you know, like they always had been clean. God's just playing some kind of game here. Jesus didn't say they were clean. He declared that they were clean. He made them in that moment clean. In that moment, he said that something had changed the status of food for God's people. That, one was, that what was once unclean was now clean that it no longer made you richly imp impure. Which seems really arbitrary. Until you recall a passage like Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, where Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus came to fulfill the law. And here he is saying that all foods are now clean. He's saying that part of the law is what? It's now fulfilled. That what it was intended to do has been accomplished. That the purity laws have been fulfilled. Think, how is that possible? It's because Jesus is here to deal with the reality of spiritual defilement, not the picture. It's because he's come to do something far greater than wash away ritual impurity. He's here to go to the heart of of your spiritual defilement and mine. To make it possible for us to come into God's presence so that we can be in fellowship with him regardless of what we've done or where we've been. So that you can be friends with God without disgusting him. Jesus will become unclean for your sake. He will take on himself everything that comes up out of your heart. He'll do that on the cross so that you can be clean, so that he can put within you a clean heart, just like his own, one that can be tempted to sin, but one that no longer loves to sin, no longer wants to sin, now resists temptations, 
so that you can be the person that he always meant you to be, the person that you now want to be. And because Jesus takes away your guilt on the cross, you can now come to him. You don't have to be afraid to look at yourself. You can see the stuff that comes up out of you. You can say, yeah, that's me, and that's my heart. I got bumped, but that really is my own. And you can take it to him knowing that he will help you deal with it because that's why he came in the first place. Let me close with a story. When one of our kids was very little, they took being sick as a personal insult. Please don't try to figure out which one it is. They've outgrown this. But at that point in time, they were absolutely miserable to be around. They would grumble, complain, endlessly cry. Nothing helped. Nothing consoled them. Now, in our home, I tend to be the emergency go-to guy. If you cut yourself open, if you have a splinter, family comes to me. I'm calm. I'm empathetic. I pretend that I know what I'm doing. I'm pretty good in crisis situations. I make a really lousy nurse. I really do care. But if you've been sick for longer than 20 minutes, family tends not to come to me. So when this particular child was sick, this <laughs> these, these were really hard times for me. I remember one when they got sick at the beginning of the weekend. You looked forward to the weekend, they got sick at the beginning of the weekend, Friday night, all day Saturday, Saturday night, all day Sunday morning, on into the afternoon. And frankly, pat myself on the back, I was doing pretty well. Generally kind, sympathetic, tried to make them feel better, gave them medicine, held them, distracted them, tried to give Sally a number of breaks. I watched my weekend slowly slip through my fingers. You know what that's like? You have this list of all the things you want to do, and you realize somewhere around Sunday afternoon, 3 o'clock, <laughs> you're not going to get to any of them. And I started to get irritated about this and resentful Sunday afternoon. Now, if you're a parent, or if you've babysat a sick child, you know exactly how this goes. You've blown the child's nose one more time. You've checked their meds. You've read Goodnight Moon for the 11th time. And you cannot remember when you had a life of your own. That's when I started really resenting this child. And it didn't help that by that time, Sally had had enough as well. Get the picture here. Small apartment, two cranky adults, one cranky child. Not good times. I was so relieved. Sunday night comes, bedtime comes. I think, okay, finally, we're going to get several hours off put the child down, child goes to sleep for about 10 minutes and then starts fussing again, can't breathe. And then Sal, who had had enough at this point, also began fussing. And so I started fussing, although because I'm a ministerial kind of person, I call fussing prayer. If you were there, you'd have said it looked an awful lot more like fussing. I walked into the bedroom and I've got my hands balled up and I'm silently praying fussing at God. God, I have had it up to here. I am sick and tired of this person being sick and, be, and being upset with having a cold. I'm sick and tired of my wife complaining. And right there, I was convicted. It hit me in that moment that I am praying about all the things around me, outside of me. I'm not concerned with the real problem, <laughs> which is within me. God is so good to bring conviction, isn't he? you know at that moment that you can run to him. Why? Because God does not convict you to leave you there. He convicts you so that you actually will get the help that you need. I started praying this time. It was real praying. Started praying again. God, I am sick and tired of being sick and tired. I'm sick and tired of complaining. I'm complaining, Lord, because I don't want to give anymore. Because I think I have a right to have the life that I want to have. You can hear my heart, right? Please forgive me and change me so I actually want to serve, so that there's a desire inside to serve my wife, to serve my child. Now, why did I pray that? It's because in that moment, the Holy Spirit helped me realize that in, in the bedroom, I'm an even bigger problem than anything that's going on around me. Because what is going on around me cannot make me sin against my God. My grumbling against him and against my world is coming from within me. That's what I need help with. And without minimizing the struggle, I was amazed to really change. 
amazed that by repenting and having faith in Christ at the level of my heart that I was able to continue serving. Child was still sick, so I was still wiped out from the previous several days. But now there was something inside that said, I want to do what is good for them. It's not because I'm a great person who just tries harder. It's because I have resources given to me from outside of me that can make me what I could never be on my own. And so I was renewed inside to give what I could, and I was confident that I could do that probably for the next 10 minutes or so. Because that really is what the walk of faith and repentance looks like. It's not confidence that the rest of life is going to go smoothly. It's confidence that you can respond well right now because of the resources God gives you to do what he's called you to do, and that when you're out of resources, you can go back to him again and again and again, even if you just recently blew it. See, Jesus did not promise to change anything in my larger world. He did not promise to make my child all better so that I could relax and enjoy life. He did not promise me a spouse who always gives me the life I want. Didn't promise her that either. He did promise to bring me into fellowship with him, to give me strength and power to overcome the temptations that I get hit with every day if I will run to him and trust him. There isn't any other words you can use except to call that Grace, grace from a merciful and kind God that you can only have if you'll believe the problem is what he says it is and if you'll believe that his solution really is enough. Lord Jesus, thank you for your kindness to us, for your grace, Lord, for entering into our world that is so dark that we have contributed to the darkness. Lord, for saying things to us that we should already have known, for being patient and kind with us, for bringing us resources that we just did not have on our own. Thank you, Lord, for coming to rescue us. Give us renewed confidence that you will do that and that we can turn to you this afternoon when we need to. In Jesus' name.